in America especially, where Christians are encouraged to think that Christians must be taken out of this place. All these things do not help with the true biblical understanding that eternal life is going to be here and not in heaven. And because He ascended, He sent the Holy Spirit, inaugurating a new creation. And that's why Paul says our hope is certain, because God has given us the first fruits of the new creation. Our culture, our society is marked by all sorts of lies. Lies about marriage, lies about sexuality, lies about abortion, lies about freedom, lies about happiness, lies about history, lies about pleasure. We have a much better story to tell. And that's the story of a God who never lies and He has promised eternal life, eternal joy, eternal pleasures, eternal satisfaction, and eternal happiness in the crucified Messiah. Good morning. I just want to remind you and remind myself that there's often so much talk about preaching and what is good preaching. And and sometimes we forget that there is no preaching, true preaching apart from the Holy Spirit. All we're doing here is not a, a Bible lecture. You're not coming for a seminary class. You're coming to church. And the preaching is God's means to speak to us. And there's absolutely zero worth if the Holy Spirit is not acting mightily through the preaching and through the listening. So we, we desperately need the Holy Spirit to help us. With that in mind, I want to invite you to please open your Bibles to Titus, Titus chapter 1. How many of you have memorized at least verse 1? <laughs> Good. Titus 1, 1 through 4. Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which leads to godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God who can never, who never lies, promised before the ages begun, and at the proper time manifested in his words through the preaching with which I have been trusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. You may be seated. It's undeniable that man is fascinated with the future. Humanity is fascinated with the future. Uh, Movies, so many movies about future. How much money people spend with trying to find out their future. Horoscope and so many other things trying to, to, to have a a hand and, and, and know what the future brings to them. And some of you, if you could, would you pay to know your future? <laughs> so many people spend a lot of money trying to find out their future. What will happen in my life 15 years from now? 
what will take place in my life 30 years from now? Will the single ones be married? Will you will be in 20 years from now alive and well or alive and very ill? Will you have grandchildren, great-grandchildren in 30 years from now? And it's fascinating that this curiosity about the future is part of our, our humanity. We are humans. We are not God. That's part of being men. We have no control over the future. God alone is omni omniscient. He knows everything. Omnipotent. Has power over eternity. Think about that. We don't even know about tomorrow. We, we have ordinary expectations about tomorrow. There's ordinary expectations, right? That you're going to get up tomorrow morning and, and do the things you do every morning. Maybe have your breakfast, go to the gym, go for a walk, whatever. So you have these expectations that what you're going to be able to do tomorrow. But think about that. We don't even have power over that. Many of us here know very well that we were expecting to do something the next day, suddenly to find ourselves really sick or in a really bad situation where we could not do what we were expecting to do, what we always do. So even the normal, ordinary expectations are out of our control. But it's interesting that God has spoken about the future. What? Yes, he has spoken a lot about the future. He might not satisfy our curiosities, right? We have so many curiosities about our future. God might not be satisfying that, but he has spoken all that we need to know about the future. Amen? Has God spoken all that you need to know about the future? Absolutely. The word of God is sufficient even to tell us about the future. He speaks about the future of his people and the future of those who do not belong to him. Very clear. What the future holds for those who are his children and what the future holds for those who are not his children. And that's more than enough. The secret things belong to whom? To the Lord God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children. And as we come to Titus 1, verse 2, here we see one of the many beautiful texts of the Bible that deal with the future of God's people. Right here, we have our future stated very boldly and graciously by the Lord. So, as we continue our journey through these first four verses, and we are in the first part here, the greeter, we are getting to know Paul, and we saw his name, and then moves to his identity, his calling, and now the purpose of his calling. And I want to remind you that these first four verses are of tremendous importance. It's just like a, an opera, and you have these first notes to help everyone know what we'll be playing for the rest of the show. And that's what Paul is doing here. One scholar said that the book of Titus 
is brief, blunt, and thick with teaching and exhortation. He said the book of Titus is brief, blunt, and thick with teaching and exhortation. And I would say that we can apply that not just to the book itself, but to the first four verses. Brief, blunt, and thick. It's a lot of theology here. So we saw, you remember that we saw in verse 1, we started getting to know the greeter, and we saw first his name. And what is his name? Who is writing this letter? Paul. And then we saw his identity. He is what? A servant, a slave of God. And this slave has an office. He has a different calling. And what is his call? To be an apostle of Jesus Christ. So that's all we saw so far. And then we started looking at the purpose of his calling. Last Lord's Day, where he says, Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads, that accords with godliness. So in our last sermon, we started looking at the purpose and goal of Paul's calling to be an apostle. And we saw that he's called to be an apostle to further, to strengthen, to empower the faith of God's elect. And what is the faith of God's elect? But their entire lives. The elect live by faith. And it's beautiful how Paul calls God's people as God's elect. God's chosen ones. And what a source of comfort it is for Titus, for the Christians in Crete, and for us today to know that we are God's beloved. To be God's elect is to be what? God's beloved. And what a comfort it is. Imagine those first Christians and for us today to know that if God has chosen us, if God has elected us, it does not matter who rejects us. Who cares? Who cares who rejects me or you if God in His mercy and grace has elected us to be His children? And then Paul says that the life of faith is grounded in the knowledge of the truth. And this knowledge of the truth is never something only academic or mental, but it's actually a, an embracing, a, a loving of the truth that's manifested in godliness. And now, as we continue through these verses, let's see how verses 1 and 2, they, they come together. There is logic as Paul is putting these verses together. So you can read verses 1 and 2. It says, Paul, a servant of God, or a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with or leads to godliness. And now you have verse 2 in hope of eternal life, which God never lies, promised before the ages begun. So what Paul is doing here, he's developing the purpose of his calling. The idea is that he's called for the sake of the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. And now he's adding another purpose upon that purpose, and that is, as he is living for the faith of God's elect, Bring the knowledge of the truth, godliness, that will inevitably lead to a strengthening of the hope that they have of eternal life. So through the preaching of the gospel, Paul is fortifying the hope of eternal life of all God's elect. So, and it's fascinating how Paul connects this 
knowledge of the truth, godliness, and eternal life. The present knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in this present life is inseparable from the life to come. Sometimes we forget that what we do here has value in eternity. Our present godliness is of vital importance for eternity. Look what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 through 8. Paul says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and what, what else? For the life to come. Your present godliness, your present lifestyle of sanctification holds promise not only for this life, but for the life to come. Danny Burke, he clarifies that by saying, godliness teaches a person that God will do for his corpse what physical training could never do. He will raise the corpse to life, making it new, immortal, and glorious. So Paul calls Timothy to train himself for godliness, which will teach him to store up treasures for the age to come, rather than for this temporary age. So there's always an eschatological aspect to the present. It's always leading us forward. Paul says that if we, in Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most what? Pitted. So faith, knowledge, godliness are of tremendous importance and impact, not only in this life, but in the life to come. Think about why. Because Jesus will raise your bodies to glory. And what we are doing with your body now, training your body now for godliness, will have implication in the life to come. It's because Christ Jesus, we raise our bodies to glory that we must train our bodies for godliness now. Jesus redeemed not only our spirits, Sometimes we become Gnostics and we think that there is this material aspect that's bad and, and the spiritual is good. No, Jesus came to conquer the curse of sin. As the hymn says, as far as this curse is found. And he came to redeem not only our souls, but our bodies to creation. And that's why it's vital as Paul connects godliness Present godliness with the future. Sanctification leading to a glorification. So we see connected here in these words, verses 1 through 2. And Paul says, in hope, in hope of eternal life, which God, God who never lies promised before the ages begun. The word hope, when Paul and the other new and Old Testament authors are speaking about life after death. When they talk about hope, it's always something certain. It's always something certain. It's not, we talk about hope as well. Oh, I hope I can do it. 
I hope I can be there. As if I wish. Biblical hope about the future is not a wish or this just crossing of the fingers. No, it's certainty. It's certain. It will take place. In the Bible, this hope is a confident expectation. Look at Paul following the Old Testament teaching in Romans chapter 5. Paul says, Through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in what? Hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in hope. And then he goes on to say, hope, this hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Brothers and sisters, can you have hope on something that is uncertain and give you joy? No, it's going to give you anxiety. If you're hoping for something that is uncertain, it will not give you joy and confidence. So the confidence and the hope that Paul is talking about here is something so certain that brings joy instead of anxiety. And our hope is certain, as Paul says here, look at that, because God's love in Christ has been poured out into our hearts through whom? The Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So Paul is saying our hope is as certain as the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Did the Holy Spirit come on the day of Pentecost? You bet. And the coming of the Holy Spirit indicates that Jesus was raised from the dead and He ascended into heaven. And because He ascended, He sent the Holy Spirit, inaugurating a new creation. And that's why Paul says our hope is certain, because God has given us the first fruits of the new creation. So this new creation has been inaugurated with the coming of the Holy Spirit and will be consummated with the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's why hope is certain. You look back at the day of Pentecost, the ascension of Christ, the giving of the Holy Spirit, and it can be certain that the new creation that was inaugurated will be consummated. Paul says, in hope of what? In hope of, let's go back to Titus. Yeah, in Romans 5, you have the hope of the glory of God. Yes, our resurrected bodies. In Titus, we have in hope of what? Eternal life. Eternal life. That is resurrection life. As you read the, the scriptures, if, you, if you're doing a study of resurrection, promise, hope, eternal life, they're all inseparable. It's all part of this combo that God gives us. So hope, eternal life, resurrection, it's all part of this package that the Lord gives us. We have hope of eternal life, and so many Christians, we, we are always talking about eternal life, we sing about eternal life. We quote John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And then what? He's going to go talk about eternal life. Many of you talk about eternal life. 
when you're sharing the gospel with other people. But what is eternal life? What is eternal life? If you're sharing the gospel with someone and, uh, and you tell that person the glory of Christ and how in Christ you have eternal life, and that person asks you, what is eternal life? What would you answer? For many churchgoers, eternal life is a life in heaven. They think of eternal life in heaven. Uh, it's so messed up that suddenly we from men become cupids. We stop, we cease being men, and we are suddenly cupids. That's the vision that so many Christians have. Playing harps and sleeping on clouds in heaven, floating, surrounded by monotony and boredom. No wonder people don't want to go to heaven. I don't want that either. For some heaven and eternity are having mansions in the clouds, getting wings and flying around and having a halo over your head. And it doesn't help when you have a theology in America, especially, where Christians are encouraged to think that Christians must be taken out of this place. All these things do not help with the true biblical understanding that eternal life is going to be here and not in heaven. It's in a new heavens and a new earth. The hope of eternal life that Paul speaks here is the hope of resurrected life in the new creation. Our hope is not floating in clouds in heaven. Instead, our hope is to dwell with Jesus in the new creation. Eternal life will not be and is not in heaven. It's here. It's when heaven comes down. So, Revelation 21, we read earlier, but let, let's read again. Revelation 21. John says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. What? Are we going up to heaven? It's coming down. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. Now you understand when Paul talks in 1 Thessalonians 4, that the Lord will descend and we are going to be caught up to meet with Him. It's not that we are going to heaven. That's the ancient picture of as a dignitary, as a king is coming, Others from the town would come to bring him and bring, escort him with honor. That's what the Lord is doing. He's coming, we go, meet with him, and he comes back to his place to glorify this place and make his dwelling. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Brothers and sisters, Eternity, eternal life is not in heaven. Not playing harps on the clouds. No, it's going to be here. Serving our King and Lord the way, in a glorified way, compared to Adam failed to do. Creation, Genesis 1 through 2, is fulfilled in the new creation with Revelation 21 and 22 with a much better Edenic garden city that is the temple of God. And the promise of eternal life is the greatest promise of all, brothers and sisters. That's the greatest promise of all, eternal life. 
How does Jesus define eternal life? John chapter 17. He says the eternal life is what? To know, to know whom? To know the true triune God. That's eternal life. And what is knowing God? Of course, there is the mental aspect, right? I know my wife, relational, but I also know her mentally. There is the aspect of information, but it's much more than that. When Jesus says to know God, to know the Father, to know the Son, to know the Spirit, that's eternal life. He's talking about a relationship. The knowledge that Jesus is speaking here is a covenantal knowledge of dwelling, abiding, and living in close proximity with God. God created us to do what? To dwell with Him. God created us to dwell, to love Him, to, to abide with Him in a covenantal relationship. So when Jesus says the eternal life is to know God, this knowledge moves beyond just intellectual, intellectual assent to include trust, relationship, and communion. Eternal life is an overflow of the fellowship that exists between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's eternal life. What is life? Eternal, we know, has no end. But what is life? What is life? That's a question that so many philosophers have asked. What is life? You see, if you study the scriptures, you see that life is much more than just existence. The heart beating, breathing. It's much more than that. As you go to Genesis and you see Genesis 1 through 3, you learn what life is. Life in Genesis 1 through 3 and the rest of the scriptures, life is connected with a place. Specifically, life is connected with the place of God's presence. And what place is that in Genesis 1, 2, and 3? The Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden. You have the whole cosmos, and then you start getting smaller where God dwells, and He dwells in a garden. The Garden of Eden. Life is inseparable from God's covenantal presence. Think about the Bible. It's a story from death to life. Life to death and death to life. And life is dwelling with God. Death is what? If life is, is dwelling with God, what is death? Away. Another word that the Bible used for away is exile. That's why you always see in the scriptures this picture of Exodus, exile. Exodus, a journey into God's presence. Exile, a journey away from God's presence. Exodus, resurrection life. From death to life. Exile, death. That's why Paul says that to live is what? Christ. To live is Christ. There is no true life apart from Christ. There is no life apart from the word that comes from the mouth of God. Remember what Moses says? Man does not live by bread alone, but what? But by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And that's his covenantal word that sustains his people. So life comes and is present only in God's presence. So if life, as we think about life, what is life? Life is dwelling with God. In a covenantal and gracious way. 
What is death? What is death? He promised the moment, the day that you eat, you will surely die. He promised Adam and Eve. Did they die physically right there? No. But they died spiritually. They were exiled from God's presence. So death, what is death? Separation from, from God's gracious presence. Remember, sometimes people talk about hell as uh, being away from God. And there is an aspect that yes, we are away from God's gracious presence. But we can never be away from God. So hell, you are going to be with God. But under God's wrath. And no grace at all. Mitchell Chase, he writes the following. Adam and Eve sinned and fell short of the glory of God. There's more to dying than physical death. Eden was the realm of God's presence and bountiful provision. It was the realm of life. Exile from Eden meant separation from where God had placed them. Since God, remember, he blocked re-entry, he barred re-entry to the garden and access to the tree of life, their exile was... I would say was death, not just a kind of death, was death. The separation from sacred space meant a move away from life. And that's why you read the, the Gospels. As you're reading the Gospels, there is no way to read the Gospels and not see how the Gospel authors are painting Jesus as the better Moses, the better Passover, who is bringing a better Exodus. Because he's bringing us from life to, from death to life into God's presence. Luke 16, 9, Jesus speaks of eternal life. Luke 16, 9, he speaks of eternal life as eternal tabernacle. Why? Eternally tabernacling with the Lord. That's what eternal life is. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 4, 9. Hebrews 4, 9 says, So then... There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And the picture is that eternal life is an eternal Sabbath. Eternal life, eternal Sabbath. And remember here the Sabbath to rest is not to be inactive. Rest throughout the Bible is not inactivity or being slothful. Vegetation. Because God rested on the seventh day. But that, that, does that mean that God went to sleep? He kept sustaining all things. So there is a different type of work. In the Sabbath. And that's what we see. The picture is. For now we have this type of work. In this fallen world. But when there is a glorified new heavens. And new earth. We are going to rest. By doing a different kind of work. So we still have an eternal Sabbath. Ahead of us. So as you go to Titus 1-2. The hope of eternal life. The eternal life that Paul is speaking. Is much more than just physical existence. It's bodily. Soul. For eternity. Dwelling with God. That's what he's talking about. One scholar says. That we, that we can see from the Bible. That the greatest blessing. That God gives his people is life. Not just life in isolation, but life in relationship. In relationship with God, life in His presence, and life is the privilege of serving God as His vice-regent. 
And that's important because eternal life is not about you alone floating on clouds by yourself. Eternal life, just like in creation, was not good for a man to be alone. Eternal life, we are going to be all dwelling together, God's people, in a new earth, a glorified earth. So don't ever picture yourself alone. We're not alone. We're not alone. We're not supposed to be alone, and we will never be alone. He has his people. And Paul says, turn, turn with me to Titus 2, 11 through 13. And here you see that our blessed hope of eternal life is inseparable, inseparable from a person. Our blessed hope is no other than Jesus Christ. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness. Look at that. The, the connection between godliness and glorification and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. And what is the blessed hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Eternal life is inseparable from a person, the Lord Jesus. That's why sometimes we talk about people, oh, I'm pretty sure that so-and-so will be in heaven. That person hated Christ. Well, I'm pretty sure that person has eternal life. That person hated Jesus Christ. Eternal life is Christ. Look what John says, 1 John 5.20. And we know, we know that the Son of God has come and that He has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and what? Eternal life. To have eternal life is to be wrapped up in Jesus Christ, union with Jesus. To be in Adam is to be what? In death. To be in Christ is to be in life, eternal life. So the hope of eternal life is the certainty that we will dwell with our great shepherd for all eternity. And this hope is certain because Jesus triumphed over death. He was raised and he has given us the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you, do we already have eternal life? We see that Paul is talking about a future aspect, right? The hope of eternal life, something in the future. But do we have eternal life now? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. If eternal life is to know the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in a covenantal way, therefore, that means that we already have eternal life. But it's inauguration. We long for what? The consummation of this eternal life. So... When Paul says, in hope of eternal life, we see that Paul's ultimate goal is not just to save people now, here, but to see those who are saved through glorification to the day when they will be with the Lord Jesus for all eternity. And that should be our hope too. Long to see people not only accepting Jesus, welcoming Jesus, but living in Jesus so they may be for all eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. And look at verses 1 through 2 of Titus 1. 
and you see the, the unbreakable chain of God's sovereignty of men over men's salvation. Look at that. First, we have predestination or election. Paul talks about God's elect. Then he, talk, he talks about justification. And they're going to say, but there is no justification here in this text, right? But there is faith. Faith is inseparable from what? We are justified by faith. So you see that there is predestination or election. There is justification. And that there is what? Godliness. What is another word for training godliness? Sanctification. Leading to what? Glorification. The hope of eternal life. So here we have this beautiful work of salvation of the triune God. And think about Titus. Titus had a very difficult task ahead of him in Crete. He had opposition from within. He had persecution from without. The exhausting labor of organizing the churches, preaching, preaching through all those churches. So to be reminded of the truth that we have a solid hope of eternal life, eternity to dwell with Jesus in Jesus' arms, surrounded by glory, is necessary for Titus to face his situation with optimism, optimism and courage. Brothers and sisters, as we think about this hope, throughout these scriptures, the hope of eternal life, the certainty of eternal life, is always, always this powerful engine that keeps the saints moving forward. It's the hope, the hope that all this labor here is not in vain, that all this work, all this persecution, all this suffering is not in vain. There's something so glorious coming. Paul says that all these afflictions, all these tribulations are actually producing in us that weight of glory that's to come. So we need to take hold of this. The sufferings, the betrayals, the persecution. One day, one day, will be the heavy, heavy glory of God. They're going to be able to look back and say, Thank you, Lord. Spurgeon says, In the new heavens and the new earth, we shall enjoy the victory when the banner shall be waved aloft in triumph and the sword shall be sheathed and we shall hear our captain say, well done, good and faithful servant. We have suffered bereavement after bereavement, but we are going to the land of the immortal, where graves are unknown. The man who has this hope in him goes about his work with vigor for the joy of the Lord, his strength. He fights against temptation with ardor, for the hope of the next world repels the fiery darts of the adversary. He can labor without present reward, for he looks for a reward in the world to come. Look at what the author of Hebrews says about this hope of eternal life. He says, as he's dealing with the heroes of faith, he says, Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a a better life. The best life is not now. The best life is to come. It's to come. We have a much more 
glorious, a much better life that's coming. Think about, we live for 80, maybe 90, maybe less years. Think about how short it is compared to eternity. So Mitchell Chase, he encourages us, he says, The suffering of the saints in this world will give away to greater glory. A life we, we were made for and we will inherit. Christ has saved us from sin and will deliver us from all its effects. And that means that the last enemy, death, will be defeated by our bodily resurrection. The empty tomb means that the new creation has dawned. And then he says, the first fruits of the resurrection, of the resurrection life has been harvested. And this is the guarantee that God will bring all his children into embodied glory. For now we die, sowing our bodies in weakness and dishonor, down to the dust. But we sow in hope. What goes down must come up. Amen? Our sin infected and affected bodies will be redeemed and glorified and we are going to be able to dwell with the Lord forever. So I say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. And Paul goes on to say the, the certainty, why it's certain this hope? Why can we be sure? Why this hope is indisputable, unquestionable? Because of the character of the one who made the promise. Look at that. In hope of eternal life, which God, who is this God? Who never lies. Literally, the unlying God. Promised before the ages begun. Here is a God who cannot lie. He never lies. He, it's impossible for him to lie. He makes a promise. And that promise is certain. We have a hard time... It's so hard for us because we don't know anybody who has never broken a promise. We are surrounded by people who break promises. We break promises. So to, to hear that, uh, it's certain. It's certain because the God who made this promise, He cannot lie. It's hard sometimes for us to understand. We need to take it by faith. We have a hard time with that. That's why we need to look at the scriptures and see God's faithfulness. Look at God's faithfulness through his promises, through all the scriptures. That's why you go to the gospel of Matthew. And Matthew is so emphatically in to fulfill, in order to fulfill, to fulfill, to fulfill. Why? To show God's faithfulness. He fulfills his promises. Satan is called a liar and the father of lies. God is actually described here as one who cannot lie. Free from all deceit. No lie is found in our God. So Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man that he should lie. First Samuel 15, 29 says, the glory of Israel will not lie. Psalm 119, 160 says, the sum of your word is truth. Romans 3, 4, let God be true, though everyone else a liar. And Hebrews 6.18, it's impossible for God to what? Lie. And brothers and sisters, as you're thinking about Paul describing God, and that's the only time in the New Testament where we find this word, the unlying God. 
It's a very unique Greek word. And you've got to think what Paul is dealing here in Crete as he's talking to Titus, trying to help this church. Their lies, think about that, those churches in Crete, they are being bombarded by lies, lies inside the church by the false teachers. And you have lies from outside the church, the culture. Do you remember the Cretan culture was a culture of lies? To Cretanize mean, meant to, uh, to be a liar. It was a normal thing to lie. Besides that, their main god was who? Zeus. And Zeus was well known for having lied multiple times in order to have intimate relationship with other women. Cretans were famous for their lies, lies about Zeus. They said that Zeus' tomb was right there in Crete. So we can see what Paul is doing here by just throwing this bomb right here. Philip Tonner, he says, and I think it's beautiful how he captures here what Paul is doing. He says, consequently, when Paul describes God as unlying, he uses loaded language. With this language, he makes his claim about God's veracity on the surface level. While it also raises the specter of the ancient critique of the flawed Cretan religion and morality. In this way, Paul introduces at the outset a conception of God that will sit uneasily and subservily within that culture's story. Wait, a God that doesn't lie? And then he says, the tremor set up by this invasive discourse, directed both at certain rebellious, rebellious Christians teachers, Christian teachers and the Cretan culture, should not be missed. It's like a punch that Paul is throwing right now. Boom. And let him vibrate. Because he's going to talk more about that. And what Paul is saying is, instead of being affected by the Cretan story of lies, they need to be affected by God's story that has no lies. Cretans were known for their lies. Cretan society was known for lies. How about our culture? Our culture, our society is marked by all sorts of lies. Lies about marriage, lies about sexuality, lies about abortion, lies about freedom, lies about happiness, lies about history, lies about pleasure. We have a much better story to tell. And that's the story of a God who never lies, and He has promised eternal life, eternal joy, eternal pleasures, eternal satisfaction, and eternal happiness in the crucified Messiah. That's the story that people need to hear. We, like the Cretans, we live in a world broken, of broken promises, dishonesty, lies, lies, lies all surrounding us, lies about pronouns now. The volume of lies seems to have been turned up really high. Fake news all around. Instead of the truth about murdering babies in the womb, we hear of lies about reproductive rights. Instead of the truth about sterilization and castration of children, we hear of gender-affirming care. And the world wants us to walk in lies, bombard us to accept these lies, and we need to say no. We belong to a God who cannot lie, a God who is all truth, and we must walk in truth. The spirit of truth dwells within us. We have the truth of the word of God. 
The church is supposed to be a pillar and butchers of what? The truth. That's what we're supposed to be marked off, brothers and sisters. And then to finish here, let's finish. He says, In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages begun. What did God promise before the ages begun? Look at the text. What did God promise before the ages began? Eternal life. He promised eternal life before the ages began. Paul is speaking about eternity. Before the world and time were created. He used very similar language in other texts. So, for example, 1 Corinthians 2, 7. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Or Ephesians 1, 4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. So this promise of eternal life, brothers and sisters, was before time. Before the creation. It's hard for us to comprehend because we do not comprehend eternality. God is eternal. So this promise was, or this announcement of eternal life, was made between the members of the Trinity. In eternity, before the heavens and the earth were created. Before the ages began, God existed eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And this triune God did not, he didn't need anything or anyone. It's not like he was in need. Oh, let me, we are so needy. We need to create somebody. They're fully satisfied in himself. Perfectly satisfied in himself. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And before the ages began, with this perfect relationship, they announced that they would bring eternal life. They had a plan of creation moving to new creation. Nothing caught God by surprise. There was always a plan before the world was made. He had already announced this plan of redemption. You can turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy. I mean 2 Timothy. Just before Titus. 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 1 verses 8 through 11. Paul says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but sharing suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Look at that. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. When? Depending on the translation you have. Before the ages began. And which now has been manifest through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher. Brothers and sisters, before the world was created, God had already planned a new glorious creation with His people dwelling with Him. And He had already the name of all His people there. We Christians are vessels of His undeserving mercy and grace. Look at that. Before the ages began. Before the ages began. Before He created the heavens and the earth. Before your parents were born. Before your grandparents were born. Before your great-grandparents were born. Before your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-parents were born. 
Before Adam and Eve were created, he had already planned to give eternal life through the Son. That's John chapter 17. To give the authority to the Son to give eternal life to those who belong to Him. So there's absolutely nothing that you did to deserve eternal life. Amen? It's a gift. That before, before you were created, before you did anything bad or good, God had already appointed you to be a vessel of eternal life. So in light of this glorious truth, the question is, how can I continue being lazy in serving this God and Master? How can I continue being so slow in sacrificing my life for this glorious God who came in time and sacrificed himself for me? How can I walk in arrogance and pride when he elected me before the foundation of the world to give me eternal life? Why should I be afraid? If the hope is certain of eternal life, why should I be afraid? Why should I be anxious about tomorrow? Why should I worry about tomorrow? This broken body that we have, cancer, all sorts of problems, losing eyesight, losing hearing, all sorts of sickness, all sorts of broken relationships, all sorts of emotional pains. And we have this hope that this broken body, all these broken relationships, this broken world, soon, soon, soon will be glorified. Keep in mind, this life is so short compared to the life to come. As Paul says, consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Consider, Romans 8.18, consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I'm ready for tomorrow. Let Monday come. I have a God who cannot lie promising me a life of eternal bliss by His side, under His smiling face, with a glorified body, glorified relationships, no more sin, no more pain, no more tears, no more graves. Let this blessed assurance control our lives. Amen. Father, we thank You for Your kindness in sustaining us, in feeding us, in providing for us all that we need with your word. Lord, I pray that your word would pierce our hearts and those here who do not know you, that they would realize that they have no eternal life. Actually, they have eternal death apart from Christ Jesus. Many a life completely outside your grace and your mercy. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict them and help them to empower them to run to Jesus 
and that the Lord Jesus, the one who is sovereign over eternal life, would give them eternal life. And for those here who have eternal life, who have been blessed by your grace and your mercy, that we would walk in light of this truth, Lord. Let this be the engine that keeps us moving forward. This great hope, this blessed hope that we have. And this hope is no other than Jesus Christ himself. So please increase our love for Jesus. And diminish our love for ourselves in this world, Lord. Increase our love for the world to come and help us to join our voices with Paul and says, Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. We long, we long for a glorified world where we will sin no more and hurt you no more, hurt others no more. In Jesus' name we pray.